I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. On today's episode, we have Dr. Stephanie Allen. Stephanie is a physical therapist at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness in Boston, Massachusetts. She specializes in ACL rehab and is passionate about working with youth athletes. Stephanie is one of the co-founders of the Level Up Initiative, whose mission is to drive positive change in healthcare and was created to help give a frustrated population of passionate professionals a collective voice of reason and hope. In this episode, we will dive into a variety of topics from Stephanie's powerlifting training, ACL rehab, to our struggles with the academic system, and how to create positive change through continuing education experiences, and much, much more. So without further ado, here's our episode with Dr. Stephanie Allen. We will be back after this quick message. Are you ready to start lifting heavier, outlasting others, and moving like a gazelle? Oh, you better get ready for the Endure and Repeat 20-week training program coming April 5th, 2021. Not only will the program include large amounts of program writing educational content, such as an overview explaining progressions and training concepts, but the program will also help you start prioritizing your own fitness, training consistently with sustainable strategies while getting yoked, and using trackable metrics to watch yourself progress. And the program includes videos for every single exercise to avoid you scratching your head about what you're supposed to be doing like other training programs out there. If you're willing to put in the work, this will be the most rewarding training process you have ever embarked upon. Head over to michellebolin-training.com to learn more. And now back to the show. Steph, happy Friday. We were just talking about your workout today. And immediately we're going to go right for it. No holding back. What was it? <laughs> so this morning, I usually, we don't work on Fridays. We are uh, fortunate. So I the go most in. Amazing thing I've ever heard, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's recent development in the last year. Schedules have been odd, obviously, with, with COVID. But um, since no real gym access, we do. I go in on Fridays before um, too many of our other coworkers' patients come in. Um, and I'm usually on those days, it's a, it's a squat day. Um, so this morning I did SSB squats. I did some, we recently, one of our Christmas presents from our boss was a K box. So like flywheel training. Um, I, I did some soleus work there. Michael Amato, my coworker will be very proud that I mentioned that. Um, I did feet up bench and then I just did some accessories. It's not, not a bad day. Are you, uh, so this, this begins the part of the podcast where I proceed to talk shit about our guest training habits. <laughs> Firstly, thank you so much for being with us, Steph. Happy Friday. Um, so, so to my, like to my ears, it still sounds like you kind of train in a power lifting kind of way. Like you're still pursuing some squat numbers and bench numbers. Not really pursuing numbers right now. I ha- I am influenced obviously with with barbell work and powerlifting, I, I did a powerlifting meet, um, a little over a year ago and kind of in that process, I hadn't done a ton of barbell work. So I sort of 
re-fell in love with it. Um, I had done a little bit, but a lot of like dumbbell, kettlebell, um, and a crap ton of running. So uh, it was it was helpful just from a sense of being in a time of my life of being cognizant about you know bone health and everything like that. Um, so and then sort of to dig a little bit into that, also I had a recent bone stress injury. So I took a little bit of time off to make sure it wasn't going into fracture. Um, fortunate it did not, but now my intent with training is a little different for that reason. Um, so I've been learning a little bit more about how certain types of training, again, this could be like a whole, you don't have to go into the rabbit hole, but like certain, um, loads, speeds of loads, how you set up the, the reps, meaning like more of almost like cluster sets. So doing like three to five with like max concentric effort, let's say on a squat, like fast on the way up with, you know, maybe somewhere close to 70 to 80%. So stuff that's like hard. Um, and then like not as long of a break. Um, so I've been setting up one to two of my training sessions like that a little bit more. Um, and that's literally just based on some research I've been reading and, and bone health in general. Um, so different types of numbers, I guess, <laughs> but but powerlifting influence for sure. Is that what you, so what was the set rep scheme for your safety squat bars today? Today I did five sets of four and I used, um, I used the wedge. So it was a bit more, um, quaddy. Squatty squat. Yeah. <laughs> what are your, uh, specific powerlifting PRs? Oh, I'm gonna have to remember now. Shit. Just, um, just going for the kill. Jesus. <laughs> Well, no, this is, this is good. I should know this. Uh, deadlift was 231, I think. 231. Um, squat. If I was going for the kill, I'd ask her how much she weighs, but I will not do that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually you better, often win that one as far you as better, like, You better ask Michelle how fast she ran the mile. Like, just <laughs> give as good as you're getting right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. I think the, my... Bench was 125 and then squat, let's see, 205, right around 200. All right. Michelle's giving a, Michelle's giving a look like she's sizing you up for a fight right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing the math in my head. You know what I mean? <laughs> what she's, I, 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 she I bench pressed me basically. Yeah. Well, say, those are all more than my, well, no, bench is not, but. The other two are definitely more than my body weight. So that'll clue you in because you know it's between the two. <laughs> if, gotcha. if any listeners want to volunteer to go to Michelle's house and clean and jerk Michelle, that's always an option. We'll run a raffle for that. Uh, Steph, what's the deal with the K-Box Stolius work? I'm super, I, I, have, I have no idea what that is. So tell yeah, me sorry, more. I threw, I, threw some, I threw some words at you. Um, so the K-Box is, we have, there's a couple different, I think people that make them. We, the most, most well-known is um, Goecentrics. So you've actually, if anybody here is PT and they've been to CSM, you've probably seen them in the, in the exhibit hall. Um, but it's essentially, it's flywheel training in the sense that it's literally, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this justice really. I would, I would YouTube flywheel training, <laughs> but, um, but you're, you're connected to like a rope, like a, um, and there's a hook at the end of it. There's different implements. So it's a platform, the flywheel's underneath. And what you do is, let's say I'm doing a squat, right? So you attach the clip that's to the thread or to the rope. Um, 
to a waist belt, right? And so that goes, that's between your thighs on this platform. It will, it's going to pull you down. You wind up the wheel, it pulls you down. Then you push up, like that's the concentric side of the squat. But then because it's flywheel, as soon as you set the range of motion, as soon as you get to your top range, it's pulling you down. You have to resist the pull down. So the thought is that you get, you optimize both the, both the concentric and eccentric phases of it because during your eccentric, it's pulling you down. And during your concentric, you're pushing against it. But the caveat that makes it hard is that the quicker and harder you push up on the concentric, it's going to pull you back down that and more. So what do you, yeah, how are you dosing that with soleus work and what are you looking to get out of that type of work? So I haven't run for a while due to that bone stress injury. So I'm starting to get back into run walking. Um, and this is after being a consistent runner for years. So, uh, you know, hence the bone stress injury, pretty common, um, unfortunately. But I'm getting like a little bit of some tighter slash sore Achilles, which has never happened before. Um, potentially how I'm, I'm actually slowing down my running a lot. So again, slow slash fast running, high slash low cadence, all of that kind of stuff is probably at play here. Cause it's been different for me. Um, so I actually just did it as a standalone set and did it kind of like, um, short rest in between like cluster sets. So I did eight with, um, you can, the way you can gauge resistance with this as well, aside from how much effort you put into it is there's these wheels you put on and they're like small, medium, and large, and they're equivalent to a certain amount of weight. It's all in kilograms, but us Americans don't do that. So I don't know exactly what each of them are. Um, so, but with, with soleus and calf work, as you guys know, like you, you can load it up more than you think. Um, so slapped both of the wheels on and I just did um, three sets of eight on each side with like a minute in between. And you were like doing like a slightly bent knee calf raise essentially? I was sitting, so I was full on seated calf raise. It's, oh, it's cool. funny. Um, it, it would be really, it would be really interesting if I could actually show the audience what that setup is because it is us putting a stool next to the K box itself and then our road box on top of that so that we're sitting. And then that way our foot on the wedge is going up and down right over where the, um, it's essentially line of pull or like force vector. You want to be like as close to your ankle as you can. So this was from, Actually, I think one of our aides, Anthony, came up with this setup. Oh, this is from a lot of tinkering. <laughs> <laughs> you should take a picture of that setup or snap a video and yeah. send it to Michelle. She'll put it in the show notes. I, I will definitely do that. Very cool. <laughs> Sweet. I, I love how he's delegating tasks now. You're just going to randomly, Michelle, you're just going to randomly. Yeah. Send that to Michelle. <laughs> like, have her do that little <laughs> mediocre work. I delegate this to Michelle because I don't know how to do show notes. Michelle's the brains <laughs> behind this whole operation. So do you have, so it sounds like you have a pretty sweet home set up. That's like my dream. I'm looking for like houses now to potentially move. And I'm just literally the only thing I'm looking for is, Hey, is this, is the basement like done? Like, can I fit like a squat mm-hmm. rack down here? Can I do yeah. chin ups down here? That's literally the, the only reason I'm looking around. <laughs> So you mentioned something that I think Michelle and I wanted to ask about anyhow, and that's the powerlifting meet that you competed in, I think back in 2019, we were able to unearth that via some very light Instagram creeping slash very professional (laughs) podcast research. Um, What was the process of that preparation like? How much of a departure was that for you from your previous training? And then what did you end up learning from that? Yeah, a complete 180. Um, So again, I had done some 
some barbell work, um, but not anything consistent and then went pretty much straight to only barbell work. Um, and I was very, um, how shall I put it? I was not in tune with the whole taking like a full three minutes between sets, like max effort sets. And I was just like, what, you know, and it took me time to learn like, Oh, when you get to certain, you know, percentages slash weights that are for you really heavy, you need those three minutes <laughs> to be able to actually, um, get to some of those higher weights. Uh, so yes, from psychological and physiological, totally different, but it was one of those things where I, I really wanted to just sort of test my body and see what I could do in this realm versus I could run at a certain pace at that point for however long I wanted to, that was kind of what I was used to. And then doing some accessory work or whatever. So it was a bit of a, like kind of just a challenge for me in essence. But um, I would say that the, the training went pretty much from like, I would maybe run once or twice a month just to kind of like, fill that void myself (laughs) yeah yeah exactly because it is something that I enjoy um so you went straight from running to basically powerlifting like two extremes yeah did you (laughs) did you track volume when you started training for powerlifting I was I was definitely careful in the beginning as far I wasn't like overtly tracking stuff on paper um but I didn't so when I there was a period of about four four or five months, might have even been closer to six, that I was training alongside, but not formally on the team at um, Precision Powerlifting before I actually joined the team and decided to to train for a meet. So there, that I kind of considered like my ramp up period, because I was still like dabbling in some of my own stuff and like running a little bit here and there. Um, But once I actually decided to do the meet, I completely stopped running as far as you know, except for maybe like once or twice a month, short runs. And I was just, lift, I was doing a three day week program. So, um, I had like full rest days in between. And then like on one other day, probably just like a steady state, like bike or walk. How did your body respond to that massive of a shift in training? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that the bone stress injury didn't have anything to do with it, but no, (laughs) no, it didn't. That was way later. That was actually when I, when I, um, this is a good learning lesson for people. We'll talk about this one, but after the whole year plus of pretty much primarily powerlifting, then I was like, oh yeah, I'm just going to hop back into doing some of the same running that I was. And like, "Mm, we're the worst patients sometimes because that's definitely not what happened. Um, I would actually say that I feel like there was a little bit of a change in body composition and not in the way that I thought and not in the way that probably most females think are going to happen. I did not get bulky (laughs) at all. And I just got really strong and I had a little bit more definition in like quads. And um, I don't know how PC this is, but I definitely, my butt got bigger (laughs) And not nice. Not we'll, we'll bleep it. We'll bleep that out. This is a family show. <laughs> but, Michelle, uh, Michelle, get on bleeping that out, please. Oh yeah. Oh, thanks. I'll write down the number. Um, but yeah, no, I would, I would say definitely just in a body composition perspective, it was definitely different and not what I expected. 
so this this follow-up is going to kind of showcase my own biases at the moment or kind of what I'm thinking of, but um, did you track anything like range of motion as you left the domain of running and forayed into like heavier loading via barbell? Were you looking at things like a deep squat or a toe touch or hip and shoulder internal rotation or were those things that were just kind of not of concern? No, I, I don't remember like... I mean, no, I didn't track them, but I also don't remember feeling any stiffer or limited if that's, I mean, like I've never not been able to do a toe touch or um, like reach behind me in the car or anything. I know that's not like full, full range of motion assessment, um, but no, I did not track that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I know a lot of the circles that me and Michelle run in, there's kind of I don't know, maybe Michelle will agree with me here, but there's like a little bit of a phobia now around like very heavy barbell training. Just be, we, we think because that might because cause it, some secondary adaptations that limit range of motion. And or I'm just, how people act, it's, it's going to kill people is how people, people act. Yeah, and it's, it's funny. It's like this, probably this false dichotomy of like either strength training is the greatest thing to ever exist and everybody should be pursuing it and everybody should be pursuing strength numbers or it's the thing that's going to ruin your athleticism. Mm. And it's like, of course, the right answer is to sit on the fence so you can see both sides. But do you have any thoughts about that tension? Do you find yourself like falling predominantly in one camp? No, I'm definitely a fence sitter. But it is interesting that you say that because I do think that I, I wonder often where these things come from, because I do know that the quintessential power lifter, right? Like they're short and stocky and they can't reach behind their back and they can't do like a full overhead. And like they, it's hard for them to like some, do something like tuck their shirt in the back because they don't have that, that rotation kind of thing. Um, so I, I know where that sort of comes from, but I'm also wondering too, cause I, and like, I haven't, dove into research if there is research on it so i don't necessarily have um the clout to say one way or the other but it wouldn't necessarily make much sense to me that at least from just a range of motion perspective that it would make a huge difference um and then i would also just wonder in general what people would be worried about as far as it being de detrimental like it, and maybe that maybe that's kind of like a clarifying question in general. Like, are people feeling like it's going to be detrimental to their sport, sort of thing? Well, I think it goes a lot of ways in terms of you know we're all in our own little worlds in whatever field or realm that we are, right? So, I think like Tim and I are kind of in this little bubble of uh, people who are very focused on like movement variability, right? And so like that type of training adds a lot of muscle muscle mass, which can possibly you know, create like the superficial, like squeezing of like our, our bones and our structure, like compressing, and that can take away joint range of motion, thus I like limiting movement variability. But when I like, when I think of, you know, I mean, visually you're in front of me, the listeners can't see you, but <laughs> we probably <laughs> have the same like body type. We have a very cross country runner, typical female shape, you probably have a solid foot on me, by the way, but we don't have to talk about that. Um, so maybe that type of training is actually a positive for you because that type of compression 
on your specific system, uh, maybe actually something that you should pursue. And when I asked you about volume earlier, that that's what just goes like immediately right to my head because, you know, if you're taking long rests in between um, your training, it's not like you're getting this uh, mass amount of like stimulus to me. Like if you were chasing like this, like high rep scheme, high set scheme, I would probably say like, that's probably going to hit your system a a little higher and like young training age. If you're entering right into powerlifting, you're probably not hitting these loads that are going to greatly compress and and crush you. It's kind of like, you're, you're just kind of like beginning off with. It's it's sort of go ahead, Steph. I was going to say, I think that that's actually why it ended up being, um, I think such a positive experience for me too, because I didn't hop right into compete mode. I was kind of like dabbling in it and realizing how much I liked it and realizing that I liked feeling really strong. Um, And I didn't necessarily just go right to like, I want to do a meet and chase numbers and try to spike my volume in something I've not done formally. Yeah. One, I really respect the kind of change in just experiencing something different, trying something new. It's kind of like playing like a rec sport, right? Like you should do that. Like learn something new, try something different. Definitely outside comfort zone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And we'll dive into this a little bit later, but kind of like what you, you know, maybe indirectly were kind of mentioning before was why are people so afraid of something, right? And it, it is but I respect a lot about you and what you're trying to do is like the language that you use with people. You have to be extremely careful about what you say. Cause like, if you do say like that barbell will do something negative to you, it's like, why are you putting kind of that belief on someone else? Um, I think that may negatively impact someone more than the actual activity itself. Absolutely. I, I, I was going to say, I've, uh, Steph, I've read and listened to a good amount of your work in the past week, kind of leading up to this time that we have together. And the one thing I really respect about what you're doing is like you talk a lot about the value of barbell training, especially for like youth female athletes from a psychological perspective mm-hmm. so that they can get out of this viewpoint of, you know, feeling like insecure or, or weak or vulnerable, like whatever, whatever phrasing we want to use. And I think across the board, like we can talk, we can talk shit about like, you know, what heavy lifting might be doing to the right type of person in terms of robbing them a range of motion. But from a psychological standpoint, like heavy lifting is a good, just like fast running is a good, like it makes people feel like they can fuck shit up. Right. Like, (laughs) like they can, they have dominion over the world. And I don't know. I really, I I think I heard you say that on the like resilient training lab podcast Mm. from earlier this year or last year or something. And I like that really resonated because I come from the same background as you and Michelle were like, I was a runner and all I did was like run in core till I was like 22. (laughs) And then I was super injured and someone was like, yo, CrossFit's a thing. So I got real into CrossFit and like that year of going from, you know, barely being able to deadlift 135 to be able to pull like 395. It's like, that was the most confidence that I've ever gained in rapid succession. And I don't know, I just, I commend you for your work in that space for attempting to make youth athletes more confident in their abilities, more confident in themselves, and then trying to, you know, ultimately make them lead better lives. Well, that's a definite, um, well, thank you. But also uh, it's a definite other little mini rabbit hole in general as far as youth athletics goes because it's tough I see a mostly young and athletic population um and so our our 
clinic is in Winchester, which is a very athletic town, specifically soccer and um, male and female. And they're, these kids are just playing the same sport all year round. They might play multiple sports, but they're playing two sports at once. And one of them is their main sport. And it's been interesting to sort of step back and take a look because I, I wonder what, and I'm, I'm thankful for places like Mike Boyle and like there's athletic evolution. There's, um, there's impact sports and performance in Woburn that does a lot of great stuff with young athletes and they just need something different because if you, and this is one place of the research I have dove into and it's, you know, the, the kids that are playing multiple sports and the kids that are concurrently strength training kids, meaning like they can start at nine, 10, 11, not necessarily with the bar, but just having that other stimulus and, and having that as part of their routine, even if it's once or twice a week, the amount of injuries is, and or risk are just so much lower. And so when it's just hard for me, um, or it, it feels good for me to be able to help influence male and female young athletes to something like barbell or kettlebell work um, as, as maybe something cool, but then also indirectly will help a prepare them for sport and or decrease their risk of injury. Um, that's not nearly as sexy as like, Hey, this might help make you stronger or faster on the field or whatever. Like sometimes those are, those are parts of the words that I choose um, with, you know, a positive ulterior motive. Um, but that is definitely something that I have another, <clears throat> like a, that's one of the deep down passions I have too. Like if we can, if I have a lot of kids that come through my door, then at the very least, if that's one little nugget I can leave them with and maybe just make them a little bit more interested in, in lifting and having that be incorporated, then that's, you know, that's a win for me. What about females specifically? Because that is a good point that, that you make. Um, I'm going to butcher this and I might regret referring Mike Boyle to this, but I believe it was at his gym. Someone told me like, uh, you know, they discourage males from wearing cutoffs because they don't want like ego to grow. Right. But then they encourage uh, females to kind of wear cutoffs and like feel strong and being powered kind of like two different messages. So what do you think like the messages that females are, are getting and the role that which like resistance exercise can, can play in their lives and how you go about changing that? Do you mean the message they're, they're getting now or they're getting like with the influence or with hopefully what my influence is? <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. So like by culture in general, like kind of like what you go bad, like, oh, uh, you, you'll get big and big is bad. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering how much the specific is of like, I mean, I definitely know that getting bulky is a thing that narrative is still around. Um, and I hate it, but it, it is something that society has, you know, allowed to perpetuate. So, um, and I've tried more in the last few years to not necessarily poo poo that as much if I hear it, because you never want to actually, especially in a physical therapy setting, the last thing you want to do when people are telling you what their beliefs are is shut it down because <laughs> you know, then there's, there's no way they're going to listen to you. Um, but, but I do think that that is one thing. And the other thing is, I think it's, it's unspoken, maybe it's not defined as well but there's just this view slash expectation of females versus male even athletes even if you're an athlete 
they just don't, they don't belong. They just don't go in the weight room. And like coaches, coaches don't bring their female teams in the weight room. You know, I'm not saying it's the coach's fault, but it's just like, those are the things where there's, there's almost like unspoken rules that most females between the, as young as probably like eight or nine and, you know, through, through high school. And then all of a sudden the other off direction of this a little bit is like, then all of a sudden in college, if they play D1, D2, D3, then they're supposed to follow a strength program. They've never touched, you know what I mean? So that's another mismatch is at the collegiate level, they're expected to know their way around the weight room in most places for a sport. Um, and nowhere along the line, unless they have access to a place like Mike Boyles or um, one of those other gyms, you know, that's just a, that's a smaller subset of the population. So I think that the message in general is just that they don't belong there. Yeah. I think when I was a D1 strength conditioning coach, one of my missions was to, you know, I, I say teach them sustainable strategies and I'll kind of maybe get into what I viewed that as, but I wanted them to enjoy exercise and learn things that they can carry over after they graduate in four years, because I saw a lot with the collegiate, when I was in undergrad playing collegiate level soccer, you know, a lot of my teammates, you know, graduated and then like, yeah, maybe they would go running once in a while because like, quote unquote, like they didn't want to get fat, like seriously. So they would say, and it's like, they didn't, they obviously didn't learn anything that one, they could continue on with, and two, they really enjoyed. Um, And so maybe like switching gears a little bit, would you, excuse me, is there such thing as like getting too strong? What Mm. do you think about that? That's a really good question. I can't think of two, I can't think of any situation where I would say that like 100% is true. Um, I'm trying to like scan my physical therapy brain here to think about what, what that would mean. Um, and, and I'll talk a bit, just that vamp and give you some time to process this. Cause I think that this is where probably context matters a fuck ton, right? So yeah. like you and I are physical therapists. It sounds like what you mainly do is physical therapy. I kind of do 50, 50 remote training and physical therapy and Michelle's a trainer, right? Mm-hmm. So I think in the realm of dealing with patients, a lot of the time what we're looking to do is get people to not fear load, right? And to, and to develop kind of this like this anti-fragile mindset. Not to say that's not what training is, but I think probably what Michelle was driving at is at the end of the day, if you're training someone for a field or court sport, we're probably not training them to be a power lifter. So in your own practice, how do you walk the line between, you know, kind of encouraging heavy barbell type of behavior um, and without letting that sort of run amok or become the predominant training influence. Yes. That, that definitely makes a little more sense to me. Um, so like, I'm not saying this is Tim's job, you know? (laughs) Well, no, I think actually what, what I was thinking of originally with your question was even someone who, um, you know, is you, you hear those weird stories every once in a while of someone, you know, doing something voluntarily like during sprinting and they have like an avulsion fracture or something like that. Like, or they do such a repetitive job in some sort that's heavy lifting and they end up with an issue because they are literally just so strong on one side. Um, in that kind of sense I could see it a little bit more in an occupational way. Um, again, that's probably more physical therapy. 
Um, but to your point, Tim, I do, as far as how I walk the line in practice, I'm, I'm not having people do, especially young athletes, like we're not doing one rep max, te- max testing or, you know, I don't do anything less than probably like four reps. Um, and I'm not having them sit around for three minutes between like we're, you know, we're, we're doing other things as well. So I think that in general, the way I, the way I set up the programming is intentful in that they're probably not going more than maybe 80%. And that's not all the time. Um, and what I have been playing around with a little bit more slash, um, seeing some good outcomes with as far as running and, and, you know, how they're feeling with running mostly after ACL surgery. So just another context piece here, um, with, when they're ramping up running a little bit more, we're getting into sprinting, we're getting into some of the change of direction stuff, the, the higher demand things. Um, then playing around with setting up sets that are a bit more almost like speed sets where they're moving again, kind of like max concentric and they're doing shorter, like similar to what I was describing before, but with a different intent than bone health. Um, and, and making sure they're moving like moderately heavy weights, but moving them quickly. And then we're pairing it with something almost like, sometimes I'll pair it with something that is uh, plyometric in nature. So almost like contrast training. Um, so those sorts of things. That, and I would say the biggest thing is just the, the, the way that I set up the programming is such that it's not all the way needle towards powerlifting, um, but some of the same movements are being used. I mean, it, yeah, I, I, I like that quite a bit. It sounds like you're using the barbell or the trap bar as a tool to accomplish a specific outcome rather than as a means unto, unto itself. Yeah, the sole outcome. Right. And I think really that question comes from I'm getting closer to out deadlifting Tim. So he's trying to be like, okay, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what is too strong? Is there such thing as too strong as like the specimen over here? Maybe, maybe I can convince Michelle that she's getting too strong. So she'll chill out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm quaking in my boots over here in Colorado. <laughs> So let's, let's change gears a little bit, but it's something that you mentioned as you were talking about the last topic, uh, from one physical therapist to another, how do most PTs fuck up ACL rehab in 2021? We'll be back to the show after this quick message, whether you're a trainer, coach, or therapist, our jobs are hard. And oftentimes the last thing we want to do after a long day or week is sit down and write ourselves a quality fitness program. During my first few years out from physical therapy school, I found myself falling into this trap and repeating the same ineffective workouts that yielded the same familiar aches and pains along with the same old strength numbers or running paces. Towards the end, I found that it started to sap some of the enthusiasm I was bringing to the table when working with clients, and I couldn't have that. One of the best personal and professional decisions I've made in recent memory was hiring a coach to design my own strength conditioning programs. Removing the pressure of constructing my own workouts was massive and enabled me to experience different facets of training while continuing to progress towards my unique fitness and performance goals. That's why I'm so passionate about my remote personal training service. Every four weeks, you get a new program fully customized around your time demands, injury history, performance goals, and equipment availability. Each exercise in the PDF is linked to a YouTube video of yours truly, so you always know what you're supposed to be doing. We'll chat on Zoom for 30 minutes during the first and last weeks of the program, and I'm available seven days a week for questions or video feedback via email. 
Take a major step towards your mental and physical health today. Let me program for you so that you can rediscover why you love training in the first place. Find out more by going to timrichart.com slash services. And now back to the show. Oh God. To be careful who listens to this, huh? Um, I just so- call people out by name. Just, just go for it. <laughs> Please. I don't, I don't even know if I know that much. Um, but I will say that I, I've fucked stuff up in the past, you know, like you do, you have to go through some fuck ups to, to learn and do better for sure. Um, but I would say the majority of general outpatient ortho PTs that maybe don't have as much experience working with this population, um, is that we just don't, we don't get them strong enough. Um, and I, I know that sounds super simple, but the reason it's not is that with ACL rehab, what you're most of the time dealing with is a younger individual. So either a, a young adult, um, or adolescent, most of the time, that's just the largest demographic. They're playing more sports. They're more likely to get in a traumatic injury like that. Um, and they oftentimes were before they even got the injury, not super strong. They just, their, their training age, male or female, they, if you think about it, they just ha- they're, they're not that strong, but they're playing sports that have such high demand on things like the quads and the hamstrings and, and everything. Those, those are their, those are the active supports for something like the knee joint for something like the ACL. So they, they oftentimes weren't that strong before. Then they get injured. Then their whole, they're used to doing something six days a week and they don't do much during the week leading up to surgery, however long that is. Then they have the surgery. Then you have other things that come after that neurological changes where quad inhibition happens. So there's this prolonged period of time that now this individual, particularly that area or that lower extremity, both lower extremities are sort of relatively deconditioned. You're working on getting both sides stronger than they were before after they've already just taken a hit. So that's why getting strong enough is really hard. And that's why it's not necessarily a knock at PTs, but it is the number one thing that we could do so much better at. And it's just still not, ironically, it's not measured objectively and it's not, um, it's not emphasized enough because they don't like, let's, I, I put it this, like my, one of my biggest mentors, Derek Miles and the analogy that stuck with me most is we have these kids maybe two or three days a week. Three would be a lot. I don't usually see kids more than twice a week, but I program for them at least two other days of the week because they're used to doing something active five to six days a week. Then they get surgery and they're doing maybe an hour with me twice a week. It's going to take a lot longer than a year to get stronger than they were before. How are you objectively tracking strength in one of these athletes? We are very lucky last and, and prior to this, I was doing things like squats and using our cable. So we have, cause our cable machine gives power output. Um, but we now have a dynamometer, so it's just a force gauge, but we, we set it up. Um, it's hard to describe. I can also shoot you guys a picture of that if you want to. It took, took a lot of tinkering as well. Um, but we use, we use the, uh, we use actually one of our high low tables cause it's metal. Um, and it's fixed to the ground. We also have a rack. So that is like, um, where the two, the two main pieces of fixation are. Um, and so I can actually measure poundage output of quads and hamstrings 
it's isometric. So it's not as, it's not the gold standard, which is isokinetic, um, but those machines are like lots of tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so not, not in a private outpatient budget, but um, it is better than doing something like a handheld dynamometer because there's just a little bit more room for error there. Um, so are you looking, I, are you looking at these measures in open chain then you're looking at like open chain knee extension, yep. open chain knee flexion. Yep. Seated okay. and um, use our baseline 60 degrees. I have done 90 in the past, but it tends to, especially with the earlier testing, cause we'll test as early as three or four months. Um, which I know is probably also taboo to say, cause people don't like open chain more like earlier than uh, a certain time, but that can be a different conversation. Um, so we've been going mid range around 60 degrees. We fixate at the hips so that the hips don't move. And then we also take slack out with a band. Uh, that'll make a whole lot more sense when you see it. But, uh, but what I originally was doing was just looking at the poundage output. And um, so we do three trials and take the average for both quads and both hamstrings and then do the ratios, um, which are the, you know, beloved LSI or limb symmetry indices. Um, that people want to shoot for that 90% or above for quads. That's kind of been like the, the thing in the literature, um, which is now being called into question. Um, but what I was noticing was that it doesn't, sometimes the ratios, specifically the hamstring to quad ratios were not necessarily lining up with my gut feeling as how, uh, how well they were doing. So the hamstring to quad ratios, a lot of times were still like near 50% like high forties, low fifties for people that like everything else looked really good to me. Um, and so I was like, all right, what, you know, what else? So I dove in and then came across and learned about more of making it relative to body weight and figuring out how to calculate torque measurements. Um, so torque is just that rotational force. So a little shout out to Scott Morrison here as well. The literature says like torque for quads, the, the cutoff output or the thing that you're shooting for is, three Newton meters per kilogram. Don't worry about what all that means. It's just the, again, naturally, naturally, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, at first don't like literally when I first read it, I was like, um, come again. <laughs> like what exactly is this? Um, but anyway, that's kind of like the, the, the cutoff and all like, we don't need to get into that. Essentially it's just taking the same poundage outputs, putting it into a calculation that gives you a percentage, basically, their output relative to their body weight. And those numbers were starting to look a little bit more, you know, something else to take into consideration that made me feel a little bit better about maybe like, okay, not that I want the regular poundage output to be, or limb symmetry index to be at 50, like that still needs to be better, but at least I can confidently tell this person now, like that this piece relative to your body weight is actually looking really good. Like we're going in the right direction. I might just now bias a little bit more of this in your programming. Um, so I'm sorry, okay, so we <laughs> we have like this souped up sex machine dynamometer set up <laughs> to track strength and open chain. Um, are you training predominantly in open chain? Both. Um, okay. I think that the the one reason that, that stays in my programming, particularly for this rehab, um, surgical or non-surgical, is just that I've found that if we only do closed chain that there's just ways that the body finds to offload that area. And there's just no way around it. Um, so don't get me wrong. We're squatting and deadlifting and we're doing other closed chain, single leg stuff. Um, but the, the like knee extensions, prone hamstring curls, some K box stuff, like that's all that's, that's going to stay for most of my programming. 
what would you say, and I'm just intentionally being like the skunk at the picnic right now, but <laughs> what would you say to therapists that would say that a graded return and graded exposure to an athlete's sport activities would suffice as a rehab program? Hmm. I'm trying to think of the nicest way I could put it. <laughs> <laughs> I remind you, this is a family podcast. We're, we're allotted 15 <laughs> fucks and we're at 13 fucks at 14 now. Fuck. Um, so I think for me, what it comes down to is... <laughs> I think for me, what it comes down to is capacity. So um, it would be like, that has to be part of it for sure. There has to be great exposure to sports specific activity. We'll not ever deny that. Um, there just has to be a lot of, I even hesitate to use the word prereqs because I don't love that either, but essentially it's prereqs that I would need to have people demonstrate for me based on research and my experience also a term I don't love but it's just one of those things where if they're going to go back to a sport and you're just doing graded exposure that's another area where similar to how you asked me what I what I measure and how I measure with something like that what are you measuring and how do you measure it um so I, I think I would want to have gone through a good amount of measuring monitoring and progressing of things that I could measure prior to just being like, all right, let's see what happens. I, I, I like that. And I think that's, that's <laughs> fairly reasonable and probably something that a good amount of our profession, like an uncomfortable amount of our profession probably needs to still hear. Let's, um, let's shift gears a little bit because on another podcast, I heard you mention a name and it's one that's near and dear to my heart. So and let's girl. talk about mentors. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you mentioned Kelly Sturette's book being a influence to you kind of a couple years after graduation. I was yeah. hoping we could talk more about that. So I read the Supple Leopard book while I was doing travel PT, actually. So my, just a, a little back step, my journey into strength and conditioning was not early. It was actually after school. Um, so it's always really, it makes my heart smile when I hear you know, hear and see other schools having that as part of their curriculum, like having a strength and conditioning, even if it's an elective, just having that um, in PT school specifically, because we didn't really have, I was not exposed to that really. Um, like programming wasn't, it was like a foreign thing to me. So realizing that I wanted to start to incorporate that into my practice and even my own training, um, I just started to dig, right? So what are the first things you do? You look at things like T Nation and you look at things like, you know, Kelly. And and so I got the book and I can remember I was in California and I was sitting in this coffee shop reading, reading Supple Leopard. Um, and regardless of maybe some of the methods that I don't necessarily fully agree with that, that Kelly has in there, I always really appreciated his narrative of just like empowering the person. Like, he's like, you can do this. Like, you know what I mean? And that was something that um, regardless of, like I said, it, and this is something we talk about in level up as well. It's just like, there's so many different methods of doing things, but if they all work for people, then more of what the common thread of why they work probably has more to do with the person to person thing or the person themselves than it does the actual method. So again, even though I don't, I never really did use much of, of what was in there. I learned a shit ton and I really did appreciate 
how he spoke to the people reading the book. Like it was for them and for them to take control of whatever was bothering them so that they could continue to train. Isn't that probably the most like dominant aspect of CrossFit in my opinion is that like idea of like, you're going to do this right. And kind of not babying people in a way of more like pushing people past what they think they're capable of in, in the whole overall realm. And I think, yeah, Kelly does a great job of that. I, I think, I mean, they're just regarding the Kelly Sturette thing. And I, I think Michelle and I might've spoken about this on a previous podcast, but he's, he's the reason I became a physical therapist. Like I was towards the end of my college career on a pre-med track when he started coming out with those mobility wad videos. And up mm-hmm. until that point, like I, I thought physical therapists just walked behind like old and dying people with wheelchairs. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. Like this is a guy talking about how to use self-manual therapy to make your squat better. Like this is fucking rad. And to your point, it's like, and on a, on a apropos of nothing, like I think 500 years ago, he would have been like a wartime general or some shit. Like, he's just like, he speaks with such passion, vigor, energy. Like that's a guy that you would follow into battle. Oh yeah. But he gets you, you know, through like through his book and then through his videos, through his, like, I've listened to a bunch of interviews with him. Like he gets you really to believe that like you can change a lot of this on your own. And I, I mean, like, I can't think of what better hallmark there would be for a physical therapist. No. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I definitely owe a lot of that mindset within training and therefore, you know, indirectly for me later on in, in PT of, you know, these are things I can show people, explain to people so that they don't need to come keep coming in to see me like that was another shift earlier on was like you know i always thought okay this means i'm if you need pt you're gonna need to come three times a week for 12 weeks you know and then you know and then what happens is for most people that's fine and then they don't again like michelle you were saying they don't have any tools for after they leave and they end up back for the same thing like a year later so kelly was definitely um helpful in that sort of little brain blast of like, yeah, I mean, my intent isn't necessarily to have every person here come for 12 weeks and then come back in a year. Like, but no one had really ever explicitly said that to me or shown me that in, in school or thereafter in, in my first couple of jobs. So um, it's funny where some of the influences come from, especially when it's not in directly in your field and, or not someone who you would at the outset or like, in general, see everything eye to eye with. Yeah. I mean, if, if you hear him speak about like why he recorded those mobility wad videos back in 2006 and 2007, he was just the coach trying to solve a problem. Like he was literally just making those for his athletes at San Francisco CrossFit. They were on like a fucking iPhone too. Like his wife is recording. It's like, he's in his garage. It's 10 at night. And there is still, there is no more compelling content than those old school MWOD videos. Yeah. Cause it's so, like, he's not thinking like, oh, I'm going to become one of the biggest names in physical therapy. Like I'm going to get 200 likes with this. He's just like, I'm sick of having to deal with my athlete's shoulders hurting when they overhead squat. So I'm going to, I'm going to do something to address 70% of those issues. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. And also like a, a, a thing that like he doesn't get enough credit for, but just like the test retest model, like it's something that our field in, in a really alarming way kind of gets away from at times where it's like the best way to call yourself out on your own bullshit 
is to have something objective that you can judge your interventions by. Yeah, we test, retest all the time. Yeah, and that's why I love your your sex dynamometer contraption. Like, <laughs> linked in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, are you out of here, Tim? Unfortunately, I got to go be a physical therapist. Oh, Steph, wow. thank you so much for being here with us. You guys will continue to hold it down. This I'm is sure. where all the listeners are going to be like, you, Tim. if Tim's not here, you know? Yeah, they're going to breathe a collective <laughs> sigh of relief. The number of fucks <laughs> per minute is going to go down tenfold. <laughs> exactly. Now me and Steph do- can handle some serious business I'll, here. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Perfect. All right, Steph. So I really want to dive into continuing education things because I am so passionate about that. And I think... You know, the fact that you have started a continuing education kind of opportunity for people, you know, really company and really driving, basically taking steps forward to drive the field further and provide a source of kind of current information for young professionals. And so before we kind of dive into, you know, the level up initiative, you know, by creating that, it has to start from somewhere. So a lot of my like continuing education content and courses have really come from how negatively I feel about the academic system and like my experiences. And I'm like, you know, like how could, you know, if I had something back then that could have literally just skyrocketed me or provided me some sort of skills that would have made everything else that I was experiencing and all the other knowledge that I was gaining, like me be able to apply that information a lot better. That's kind of like where my courses like originate from. So I kind of want to ask you, you know, what first led you to pursue physical therapy? You kind of touched on that a bit earlier, but what was your educational experience like? And uh, I quoted you here saying something like, um, you felt a deep unrest and unsettling feeling in you throughout school in the first years out. So like, what, what was that about? Yeah, no, that's, um, I'm gonna take a little trip down memory lane. Um, this is good. It'll be cathartic. Um, I, uh, it, not crazy new or, or novel story for most PTs, but I tore my ACL in high school playing basketball. And um, I was actually, I hadn't heard back from all schools yet. I had applied to Ithaca and to Quinnipiac for physical therapy. And the rest of the schools I applied as pre-med because I wasn't sure that I wanted to do um, PT. And then after I got hurt and went to PT, that kind of solidified it for me because it was just a little bit less of a sterile environment. It was just more of, of me and in being able to, you know, like my PTs didn't make me call them doctor and like I watched tv while I was there and you know it definitely um it was long enough ago that it was they were doing the best they could do with what they knew then it definitely wasn't like the most ideal ACL rehab um but I really enjoyed it and it it made me really think like this is what I want to do um so ended up going to Ithaca their their program was one of the first that had the six-year doctorate so they just condense instead of it being like a four plus three with the three years being grad school. Um, it's just six years straight. And we don't have a couple of summers because there's either clinicals or gross anatomy that's built in, um, to the curriculum. So it's a little bit fast tracked there. Um, and it definitely, again, you don't 
this was not something I sort of picked up on in school. It was definitely mm-hmm. in hindsight. Um, it is definitely, it was definitely a little bit more along like the biomedical um, model, if you will, a little bit more. Um, we didn't have as much, if you will, with like psychology or pain science or strength and conditioning or those other pieces that again, in, in our realm, we, we work a lot with, but um, not every PT does just the general ortho outpatient um, where that, those areas probably left a little bit to be desired. However, I didn't realize in school, I was just literally taking most things at face value and um, trying to pass basically. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and then I did feel, you know, as graduation was coming up just a little bit, it wasn't the unrest yet. It was just like a, I'm not ready. Like I don't feel quite ready. I was still seeking to like have a deeper understanding of what I learned in school. So I ended up doing an orthopedic manual residency in Ithaca at one of the local hospitals. I, I just stayed there. Um, and I, again, it, it was still pretty like, you know, each month was a different body region and I had to take a test and things like that. And I definitely honed skills and, and got some patient experience because at that point I was, you know, technically a part-time clinician. Um, but I ended up doing travel PT for a couple of years and that's where things kind of started to make me go like, is this, is this really what I went to school for six years and then did a residency for? And by that, I mean, it was a lot of hospital-based outpatient productivity, like demanded, you know, getting yelled at for not billing enough. And like, mm-hmm. I just thought to myself, like, although I was enjoying seeing different parts of the country, I was, I started to become like really after like the first year kind of disheartened and questioning that this was really what I, like, I didn't feel like that's what I signed up for essentially. Um, So again, then I'm diving into things like Kelly Sturette and all that. (laughs) Fair. So like what, so all this kind of came about. So like explain kind of like what level up initiative is and then how it solves the problems that you kind of just talked about. Absolutely. So even as far as coming to, even after coming to Boston, um, Zach, my now fiance and co-founder of level up, we're, we're working in the same, not, not dating yet, working in the same clinic. Um, and just sort of commiserating on like having to have some of these same conversations with patients as far as, you know, maybe trying to subtly de-educate about things they've been told, like, you shouldn't squat or deadlift because you have a bad back or you should just probably stop running because you're too old and your knee's going to hurt like those. And you know, those are like the nice ways to put, you know, you have to lose weight in order to not have pain and people that have had, that had unnecessary surgeries and we're having a lot of similar conversations. And we were really like, how, what can we do to, to a, maybe not keep having these conversations and B make a bigger impact than just who we see between nine and five. Because otherwise I'm a little discouraged about our profession in general. Um, Because oftentimes some of these beliefs and or narratives that people were coming in with were from other PTs. So we didn't, there wasn't like a right then and there. We're like, oh yeah, we're going to create the level of initiative. Mm -hmm. The the idea came from actually Zach Lick's telling the story. So I won't go into it, but. I made Zach listen to a podcast, uh, Lewis Howe's podcast with Ed Milet, who was talking about um, like motivational speaking and, and indirectly towards sort of like how we are now hoping to influence students. So the fast track is basically like our intent was to 
focus on students and new grads because they're the ones that are going to be able to make the downstream change versus us that are already out. And we're, the approach that we wanted to take was more so one from not trying to immediately change, like go after changing curriculum or trying to like attack academia, but more so making the individuals, students themselves, learn things like shifting their mindset a little bit. So we talk about growth mindset, but the biggest piece probably is critical thinking. Mm. So our, that's, our, that's our month two in the, in the mentorship. And that's a, a switch that I made like after school. Just yeah, being able to crazy. ask more questions and not necessarily come at people if things don't align. You know, now kids have so much information at their disposal through Instagram and just so many other avenues that we didn't have. So they're starting to see that certain things, you know, maybe some from some clinicians they follow on Instagram that they trust. Like maybe they see something on my page that doesn't necessarily match up with what they're learning about ACL rehab in school. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, I don't know. I don't know who believe. I don't know like where to look. So essentially where we sort of come in, if you will, is, is really starting, trying to influence people to keep asking questions, but respectfully and seek out ways to maybe think about even some of the ways that, sh- that you currently think, like, what are maybe some of the holes in that? What are, you know, how can you, how can you look and recognize your own biases and see where maybe you might be a little bit wrong or somebody else might be a little bit wrong. And then the last piece is like, okay, how do you have conversations with people respectfully about these things that you don't necessarily disagree or agree with that you want to learn more about, but that you think that maybe there might be something missing on their end. And what can you learn from that? It's such a good approach because I think it's something that people miss and make a huge mistake of in terms of like complaining about something and then actually doing something about it. I have had many, many people over the course of my career ask me like what it's like to be like a female in strength conditioning and like what all the stuff you had to deal with or whatever. And I really never answer the question because it's like, it, it doesn't matter in a lot of ways. It matters like what I'm going to do about it and like making oh, yeah. a mission to like elevate other females in the industry, like, like, you know, privately you know, um, is going to make more of a difference than me, like, you know, complaining about something. Same thing in like the academic system, right? Um, So we're going to seriously bond here for a second um, and give the listeners some fun facts. I also too tore my ACL in high school. Yeah. And I no soccer. That was my jam. Um, I also applied to Ithaca. Didn't go, obviously. And then <laughs> I kind of had the same experience in my academic career. Like I went for a master's in strength conditioning. I actually came out of the program being like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Like I have no interest in that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so I really want to touch on critical thinking because my biggest complaint, more so I'm more bitter and resentful because I'm still paying my uh student loans off, but, (laughs) but, um, they don't teach you how to learn. It's almost like this assumption of like, oh yeah, you know, when they'll go through like this class or course, you know, it's, if you collect information, you study for it and you take a test, like that's how you learn. Like what's the deal instead of actually giving you the skills. And I think when you talk about critical thinking, I immediately like have that thought of, you know, you say critical thinking is an important skill that someone should have. It's okay. And I think this also carries over to the realm of strength conditioning because we kind of talked about before of 
people painting a negative picture about using a barbell or lifting heavy weight. And it's like the word choice that you're giving your clients um, is actually probably being more detrimental, right? Than the actual method or activity that you're doing, right? So communication skills are extremely important. Um, in the lines and obviously having communication with other trainers, which I know you guys talk about a lot. So when I teach like courses or dive into something, it's like, there's a difference between saying something is important, right? Like saying communication is important, saying critical thinking, but actually how do you teach people those skills and what are like kind of the action steps towards those skills? Yeah, that's a great question. We, um, what we found pretty early is we originally started in the first couple of cohorts of just having written out case studies and having people in their groups go through them. And what it's sort of evolved to based on some feedback and, and some of the successes slash not great successes that we have. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of like role-playing. Um, I guess we, we've sort of lovingly started to call it like case-based. So it's based off of a case or in the, in the small groups they have, maybe someone brings a case they're dealing with during their clinical, like let's say it's a student. Um, more common ones are things like they're not sure how to have a conversation with their CI about something that maybe the CI was doing that they're like not so sure about based on what they've learned. Or um, it's just a particular patient they're having a hard time with discussing something where this person has a hard belief that their herniated disc from 30 years ago is still there and is causing their mm -hmm. generalized mild low back pain. So, you know, something, things like that, that again, like you were saying, me as a new grad, I, this essentially level up is something I wish that I had, or, mm -hmm. you know, the Zach and I wish that we had. Um, so I would say the main means through which we actually cultivate versus just talking about critical thinking is really setting up in these small groups. There's five to six people led by a mentor. Um, and they're literally practicing having some of those conversations and asking those questions. So even the people that maybe might not necessarily be as like, it's okay if you're not like a super like, Oh yeah, I'm going to go, let me try. The people that are there, even just listening to some of the questions asked are still benefiting from that quote unquote case-based learning. And that's the that's the consistent feedback we've gotten as far as like, they're now not necessarily like they're masters at having these conversations because they're really hard. You know, I've been practicing almost eight years and sometimes during an evaluation where most of the time I end up like for most of it, we end up talking because there's a lot to unpack. It doesn't make it easy. It just means that you get, you get reps with it a little bit and you're at least exposed to and feel a little bit more confident going into some of those conversations where you might feel better asking questions about maybe where that belief came from versus just trying to educate them on why it's not true. Hmm. Those kinds of things. Yes. So I'm very uh, like principle based. That's, that's kind of like my jam. I like if you that. Will. So one of the biggest like principles I get from your kind of company is embracing failure and uncertainty. Hmm. And how do you think, you know, PTs fail at that. And what do you think that provides them in the long run? Well, I am not a lifelong embracer of failure or uncertainty. I am <laughs> million percent uh, type A and was very much like, you know, round peg, round hole, right in PT school. Um, so it, it wasn't really more so until afterwards that I started to even grapple with, with some of this. Um, but I think what we run into is that 
in general, like PT is still under the umbrella of a medical model, I think. And just in our, I can speak for at least our country, but again, you mentioned the, the book afflicted. And when you look back at the, the history in general of medical culture, it's that things like we're at a point where over, over time, over the years that pain has become like a, a disease or something itself mm. that we're trying so hard to get rid of instead of it being a normal part of life, for example. Um, and anything that causes us pain or discomfort, we take comfort in knowing a direct cause. Mm-hmm. The more we're learning about pain, it's pretty hard, even with imaging, to say that said thing is the cause of your pain. So when we in medicine and clinical realms aren't comfortable with looking at alternative potential contributors to things like pain, since that's what we're working with a lot, then how would we expect our patients to feel empowered, comfortable with taking on something that, to be honest, there might not be an actual diagnosis for. And that's freaking scary. And it also, I think, makes PTs in particular, and I can vouch for this, it, it makes you think like, I just, I have a doctorate, shouldn't I know? Like, shouldn't I know what's going on? Well, people are looking for you for answers. That's that's the hardest thing. That's what I see a lot with like doctors too. Cause mm-hmm. you know, people are like, oh, should I go get my knee image? And it's like, like they know you are coming to them for an answer and they have to provide an answer. So it's like, it doesn't mean it's gonna be a fact, like objective truth, right? Right. And what, like the book that you're referring to is called Afflicted, How Vulnerability Can Heal Medical Education and Practice. Um, so I actually got that book recommended to me through your, your company, Level Up. And uh, it talks a lot about, you know, the biomedical model, the failures of it, and how, you know, empathy and connection between patient and practitioner can solve a lot of the problems that we see. Um, and, you know, you mentioned failure. So, you know, <laughs> I was trying to like give my nephew a lecture the other day about <laughs> like a test coming up and, mm-hmm. um, you know, someone keep like someone like in our family keeps telling him, you know, it's, it's okay. Like if, if you fail or whatever. And I'm just like, it's not okay <laughs> to like have that mentality of like going into something and being like, it's okay if I fail. It's kind of like, yeah, like it's a, it's fine. It's not a big deal. But I think the response is what is the key of like, okay, I really put effort towards something. I worked hard towards something. I tried my best at creating an outcome. Oh, I failed. And it takes humility and vulnerability to be like, hey, that was a learning experience. What can I extract from this? And then how can I move on? Um and I think that that's something, and I, I use the word skill a lot because I think it's a quality, right? And something that you should be, you should be able to kind of carry out through different contexts. And so, you know, having that as a skill is extremely important, you know, whatever you're in strength conditioning or physical therapy, right? Yeah. So Seth, big hitter question that we always ask everyone at the end. Okay. Uh-oh. What's one thing you've changed your mind about in the last five years? Ooh, I like that question. Um, I'm sure there's tons of things, um, but I, to be entirely honest, if we're if we're talking PT specific, 
um, definitely changed my mind about open chain the extension. <laughs> All right. See, that is very it wasn't specific. that long ago that I was, I will admit it, like afraid of, of doing it heavy after surgery, at least waited longer. Um, and then actually challenged myself to dive into, you know, ask my mentors, dive into research, be like, what's the, you know, why do I think that? <laughs> like, why, you know, is it just because mm-hmm. that's what I've been told, which was kind of what it was. Um, but it now is, you know, again, and I hope what I'm doing treatment wise is different in another year from now. You know, I hope, I hope it's, it's different based on what I've learned and failed at. Um, but you know, it's so much, so an important staple in, in my rehab and has been such a good thing for most people that, um, I think about that, you know, again, my bias is the, through the ACL lens, but I think about, you know, what, what detriment would I have done to the number of people I've worked with in that time, had I not explored that and had I just kind of stayed like in the same camp of, you know, had I not challenged myself basically. Do you see a lot of that with your patients of like these fear towards specific exercises or movements? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Is it like a huge goal of yours to like remove those or do you just try to listen, address them, make them feel comfortable and then move forward? I used to really want to kind of like disprove, um, but, and you, you might even actually hear more of it than we do, to be honest about, you know what I mean? Like that might be even more of a, but what, what I think I have arrived at or come, come to peace with is I'm, I very rarely will like challenge anyone on said beliefs. I will just, um, sometimes I'll ask some, almost like motivational interviewing type questions or some Mm -hmm. clarifying questions. And then really kind of like slowly nudging through the exercise and movement that we do things that are similar to said exercise, but aren't, they don't necessarily register as that kind of exercise. And then you almost sort of like trick them into realizing that they've done what something, you know? Um, And that doesn't always work either, but I definitely, um, you know, I'll, I'll nudge a little bit and maybe have some conversations with people if I feel like they're, they're opening up to me as far as like, maybe why. Um, but I think that I, I stopped trying to kind of like go back and forth with people on it because you get a little bit of that backfire effect with, if you're trying to prove somebody wrong, they oftentimes just hold tighter to that belief. Um, so I, the last thing I wanted knowing that most of the time in our realm, it's exercise that, I really want them to potentially be doing or that is potentially good for them, then that's the last thing I want. I don't want to push them further away in the other direction. Yeah. I mean, we have things called deadlifts in, you know, our realm and we wonder why people are scared about like what we're doing. I know we got to come up with a better name. (laughs) I know. Seriously. Um, All right. So you tell people uh, where they can uh, find out more about you and learn from, you know, everything that you have to offer, uh, including level up. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the level up initiative, um, and again, I'm open, you know, I'm open book, whether it's Instagram, email or whatever, if you want to learn more about what that actually is. Um, but on Instagram, it's just at the level up initiative. Um, my email for the level up initiative is just literally Steph S T E P H at level up initiative. We made it really easy. Um, I'm mostly, I'm most comfortable with, um, and more often on Instagram and, for me, that's just Steph.dpt. Um, and 
the Level Up Initiative website is also just www.levelupinitiative.com. We we also work, um, we are very fortunate to work at Boston PT and Wellness. Um, that's the clinic that we work part-time at. Um, and uh, our boss is awesome. And he's had a, he's been pretty forward thinking since the beginning. Like he had a strength coach on before he even hired, uh, hired Zach almost five years ago. So he, uh, he knows what's up and it's a good example of being able to, within an insurance model, really provide good quality care. Um, and we're on Instagram there as well. It's just Boston PT wellness. Awesome. I've, no, I've known a few PTs who've gone through the level up. I actually know someone currently in your program, I believe, and uh, they have nothing but great things to say. And I think you're doing a uh, great uh, kind of service for this industry as a whole. Hope so. Hope when I'm an old lady, we can look at uh, the clinical and coaching and fitness realms and look at something a little different. Perfect. Well, grab some barbells when we're like 70 years old and <laughs> Do a I hope so. competition. There we go. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Steph. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us. And the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.